with our call to worship, we actually had uh, the last phrase was in this hour of worship. And always, just know that at CPC, we take hour as a metaphor, not literally. So. <laughs> so that's why we put the always in there, too. Martin Luther said this, God's wonderful works, which happen daily, are lightly esteemed. Not because they are of no import, but because they happen so constantly and without interruption. Man is used to the miracle that God rules the world and upholds all creation. And because these things daily run their appointed course, it seems insignificant. And no man thinks it's worth his while to meditate upon it and regard it as God's wonderful work. And yet it is a greater wonder than that Christ fed 5,000 men with five loaves and made wine from water. The reality of our day-to-day existence can blind us from the beauty and the reality and the need that is right in front of us. Our work, our families, our preoccupations with ourself can blind us from the need of those around us. can blind us from the needs of our families. It can blind us from our, our actual need. Our perception of reality, our inward sin, distorts the perception of the world around us. It distorts the perception of the actual need that we have for ourselves and the actual needs that are those people around us. The way we try to solve all our needs, first of all, we misdiagnose our needs, but the way we actually try to solve them is we seek power, we seek strength, we seek worldly might, and we seek influence to try to solve our perceived needs. Martin Luther's quotes gets to the point. We Christians may affirm that Jesus is Lord, that he's sovereign, that he's king, that he's ruler of the world. But often we overlook this fact day to day. The reality that that is true moment by moment. The moment by moment provisions that Jesus is Lord and what that actually means. Instead, we look for the miraculous needs that we have right now. Instead of realizing what God is miraculously doing every moment to provide us, we look for God. This is how, what we need. This is what you need to provide for us. Will you do that? And I'm not disparaging that because God asks us to come to him. But we misdiagnose our need. And so we ask for him to fulfill it. Instead of realizing what is he providing for us right now. Because he always is. He always is. It's his providence that holds everything together. Now, I know when I say the word providence, there might be a lot of things that come to your mind. Maybe it's the idea of predestination. Maybe the idea of election, that everything is, is, is destined to be out in a certain way. But I want you to think of this. When I say providence or when scripture has the idea of providence, it means this. Sovereign provider. I want you to think about God is Lord, that he is ruler, that he's providing everything that we need in every moment. The ordinary way in which God provides, which is such a 
crass way of saying it, the ordinary way. Like there's nothing ordinary about what God does. But the ordinary way in which God provides the day-to-day is overlooked. We take it for granted. We take it for granted that we breathe until we struggle for our breath. But God provides for every breath. He provides for everything that we have. The way God holds this broken world together is just as marvelous as the spectacular miracles that we see in Scripture and those miraculous provisions that we see happen sometimes in our lives and the lives around us. But every moment is just as spectacular as the next because God upholds it all. The feeding of the 5,000 is a lesson on proper perspective. It's proper perspective of the need that's around us and for ourselves. And it's a proper perspective of the purpose of Jesus, who he is and how he provides. In John 6, 1 through 4, let's get back into the text. After this, here's what I'll say about after this, right? So it's referring to the previous text, but it is actually not chronological in like, hey, this happened immediately next. This actually probably event happened a year or a year and a half before what just happened. So John just skips in time. He doesn't skip back and forth. He just, he's just jumping in the story of Jesus. So in the other Gospels, you might get some more filled in here. But John's just kind of skipping ahead. And you might notice because this is the third reference to the Passover. It's the second reference so far. But he references the Passover three times in his passage. And so in six chapters, he's referenced it twice. So you know he's skipping quite a bit now. So after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. There is a large crowd. They're following Jesus. But they're following Jesus not to obey him, not to worship him, It says it quite clearly, because he's doing signs and miracles. He's healing the sick. And listen, if I see one of my family members healed, I'm actually, I want to know more about that guy. Maybe I've got an ailment. I'm going to go find out more about him. Maybe I'm going to refer something. Like when we have good doctors in our lives, we're always eager to refer people to them. Oh, you should go see my doctor. Right? Or you should go see this. I mean, that's what we do. So you go show these Jesus. He healed some people. Let's go check him out. So there's a large following. And we learned about 5,000 people later on, at least men, in the text. And they're going to see his wonders. But Jesus, we've already learned that Jesus is skeptical of people, particularly large crowds. In John 2, 23 to 25, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, earlier Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for himself knew what was in man. Right? In this text, we're reminded Jesus knows the problem of this world. He knows the problem with each and every one of us. And what is that problem that he's hinting to? It's not external to any of us. It's internal. 
He says, I know the problem with you. It's your heart. Your problem is not external to you. Your enemy is not foreign to you. You are your enemy. And I do not trust any one of you. I do not trust any of your desires. I do not trust any of your heart because I know you are totally broken. We call it total depravity. Jesus knows this. He knows the problem of the world. Our enemy and issue is not abroad. It's not foreign. It's not outside of us. The enemy is inside each and every one of us. In fact, make it more clearly, we are the enemy. This is the Passover. Once again, the Passover is referred. This is the second of three events of the Passover. Think about all the, all the descriptions of the Passover that what Jesus does. The first one, it's the cleansing of the temple is referred. What does Jesus point to at the cleansing of the temple? It's a reference to his death and resurrection. The first one. This is the second one. It's a, to his, and he points to his death and resurrection as well. You'll see in a moment. And the third one, the third reference to the Passover in the Gospel of John, is his actual death and resurrection that happens at the Passover. Which makes a lot of sense because what happens at the Passover? What's it celebrating? It's celebrating the liberation from uh, Egypt, right? God saves his people from Egypt, from slavery, but more so the Passover lamb, where God instructs them, right, that the angel of death is coming. He's going to take away the firstborn of each family, unless, right, I'm going to tell my people, if you slaughter a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, over your lentil, then I will, the angel of death will pass you by. This Passover, you have to understand the context. It's not we don't really have the context, but we do understand the, what, they, what they mean by Passover or how they experience it. Passover was a really national experience for them. This was their 4th of July. This was the day that they understood they took a lot of national pride in it. This is what God did for us. God is ours. He freed us. And I want you to think about the context in which they are now, right? God saved the people out of slavery from Egypt, from their oppressor, and moved them. They took a lot of pride in this day. They celebrate. There was religious reasons why they celebrate too, but it was a nationalistic pride kind of day. Who is their oppressor in this moment? They are not free. They have Rome as an oppressor. So when they see Jesus and refer to, they're going to think about something when they see what Jesus is doing. What's God going to free us from? This is a day that formed, God formed his people. John 6, 5-7. Just hold on to that thought. Lifting up his eyes, Jesus lifting up his eyes, then seeing a large crowd was coming toward them, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. This is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels, with the exception of the resurrection. This is the only one that appears in all four Gospels. So it's told. And, and Mark's uh, reading actually helps bring context to the, the passage that we hear today. And so in, in Mark, it says 6.33-35, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got ahead of them. When, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them 
because they were sheep like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. The thing that Mark helps us is to see Jesus' compassion and love for this large crowd. He knew their hearts, but he, he loved them. And he said, man, they, they, are, they are sheep without a shepherd. No one is guiding them. No one is teaching them, which is not totally true. Right? They, had, they had religious leaders that were instructing them, but from Jesus' perspective, no one is teaching them correctly. No one that is guiding them correctly, and so his heart breaks for them. They are sheep without shepherds. So he teaches. They need guidance. He sees, also sees their physical need, doesn't he? It's a long day. He teaches for a long time. They're probably wilting under the sun. Right? This is a hot place. We do know that it was probably springtime because it actually references the grass. Uh, and so we know in the area, it's the, it's the Gallen Heights is where this place was, that uh, in spring there's actually grass, but the, uh, by the summertime the sun beats it out and dries it all out into a kind of a deserty place. So we know that this place is a dry and arid place, but yet there's a little life in it at the moment. And what does he also do in this passage? He doesn't just teach his people, he actually tests and teaches his apostles, his closest disciples. He knows what he's about to do, so he tests them. And what does he test them on? He tests their faith. He tests, do you trust me? Do you know who I am? And so Philip takes the test. John 6, 7 through 9. Philip, answering him, said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So 200 denarii would be a little over half a year's wage for an ordinary worker. And so Philip is saying, listen, even if we took half of one person's wage, we could not buy, even if we had access, enough food to provide just a little bit for these people, not enough to sustain them. How, the need that you see, how are we ever going to fulfill it? And then one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, so he takes the test too. There's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. And you think, yes, Andrew's got it. Andrew's figured this out. But then he continues on. But why are they, But what are they for so many? You see, Philip, in his response, all he sees is the great need. He says, this is miraculous. There's a huge need. I understand, Jesus. I agree with you. There's a huge need. But Philip doesn't see the provider before him. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. Andrew's response almost gets there. He almost passes the test. But it's really the same response as Philip. Because all Andrew sees is that this is not enough. These five loaves of bread and two fish, surely this is not enough to fulfill the need. All Andrew sees is the great need and is overwhelmed. He doesn't see Jesus. He doesn't see the provider. What, this is the only text also that Andrew actually says it's barley bread. And this is not actually an important reference because it's not just uh, bread. It's barley bread, which is actually the bread of the poor. Most people would have preferred wheat bread, right? So you, you think about it in our context, right? 
right? You want, we want multi-grain, hearty, yummy bread, you know, bread. Or then, right, there's like Wonder Bread, right, which like falls apart. Right? This is the difference, right? One is a little bit more expensive than the other. And so the poor people had barley bread, and they were small. It was it's not a normal-sized loaf. I want you to think like a Twinkie size. That's the kind of sorry, dense Twinkie size loaf. Doesn't sound appetizing. And the fish would have been salted and dried. I want you to think about uh, a glorified sardines, right? Basically what it is. So it's, you, you think about a, a five bread and two fishes, like, okay, that's a, that you have something in your mind. It's actually smaller and less than you think. That's the point I want to get. It's actually absurdly less than you think. I just want to pause for a moment, right? It's a test for the disciples. Philip and Andrew fail with this test. But Jesus isn't just like, oh, you're done. He's trying to teach them something. So he goes on to do the rest of it to teach them, instruct them who he is. But man, you would think that you and I are like, oh, we're going to pass this test. But we don't day in and day out. We are Philip and Andrew day in and day out. Because what happens to us? Our needs and the needs of the world and our circumstances and the moment we're in, they overwhelm us. We get anxious, we get scared, we just over like, what can we do? And the needs overwhelm us. The needs of the people around us, our own needs, our own circumstances, take over our sight, it takes over our perspective, and we actually do not see beyond them. So we come to God, and we plead to him, with our perceived needs and our perceived wants. And we tell God, this is how you ought to solve our needs. This is how you ought to solve this problem before us. And all the while, when we approach him, we actually lose sight that who Jesus is. We lose sight that he is the provider, and he's providing, if you go back to that Luther quote, he's providing something in every moment for you. There is never a moment when Jesus is not providing for you. Period. But it's easy to overlook because we get overwhelmed with the needs before you. I think this is part of the reason why we can't see and God doesn't allow us to see all the sin in the world. Because it would blind us from him. Because we would be overwhelmed with it. We lose sight of who Jesus is moment by moment, that he is the sovereign provider. And he knows what we really need in every moment. He knows our situation. He knows what we're going to do. And so the gospel, which I've said recently over and over again, is clear. The gospel starts with this understanding that Jesus is Lord. That he is the sovereign provider in every moment. And if you look at the whole gospel text, the gospel text is not, it's not just that, hey, Jesus saves me from my sin and I get to go to heaven. That is a part of the gospel. But if that is the only understanding of the gospel, you have not understood who Jesus is. What happens is at, at the very beginning of creation is that God creates, we sin, our ancestors sin, Adam and Eve, and they corrupt everything. 
All of creation is broken. And so what God is about is not just restoring his relationship with us, but restoring all of creation, fixing what we have broken. That's the good news. God is the, renews and restores all things. You pull that in 1 Corinthians 15. Go read it. All things become new. Seek the provider. Seek the provider. That's the message of the gospel. Not the provision. Seek the provider. That's the lesson that Jesus has tried to teach Philip and Andrew. Seek me. Don't seek, don't seek what you think the need is. Seek me who is the provider. Because here's the thing. The provider is the provision. The healer is the healing. Period. That's the good news. All Jesus is trying to get the apostles and then us and all followers is to trust him. That he is Lord. That he is the sovereign provider. Regardless of the direness, regardless of the magnitude of the moment, regardless of whatever it seems, regardless of whether death seems imminent, he is the provider. And we get that at the end of the Gospels, right? The world seems lost. Jesus has died. And yet, he still provides. He still finds a way. There is no moment, there is no need that like overwhelms Jesus. Like, whoa, that's just too much for me. I'm out. He illustrates it, that even death, he can conquer. In John 6.10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. I wish you could actually hear the tone of Jesus because I would like to see how he has said this. Now, there was much grass in this place, so the man's, men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, uh, we know there was men, but we know there's a women and children are present, but he doesn't tell how many of the number are. So it could have been, the total number of people could have been 10,000, it could have been 15,000, it could have been 20,000. We just know it's more than 5,000 because all they're counting is the men. But we know that the women and children are present well. So this is an absurd number. And all we have is five Twinkies and two sardines. In John 6, 11 through 13, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fists, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. The, the emphasis on this text is the miracle is, is actually not on what he actually has done, but who he is. The emphasis of this text is who Jesus is. And the lack of faith of his disciples. That's the emphasis going on here. The emphasis on the, is the absurdly small provision that was available to this enormous crowd. And then what happens? is that there is an absurdly abundant provision that multiplies more and more. And so when everyone has their fill, when it has more than they want, when they, when they gorge on this feast, they're full tummies, leaning back, probably burping, probably loosening their belt a little bit, right? Thanksgiving moments, right? Then there's more than they had at the beginning, 
It became, I mean, that's the emphasis. It's like, listen, you thought there was a great need, but you didn't understand that the provider was present. And no need is too great. Twelve baskets filled with leftovers. Right? We know the twelve baskets, right? The connection, right? How many tribes of Israel? Twelve. The wholeness of that. There is enough for all of God's people. And then what? More so. More so. There were leftover fragments. You see, the, the context of all the gospel is that Jesus is Lord, not just of God's people, Israel, but that he is Lord over God's people, all peoples, all people groups that he is Lord over. There is not a single person that has ever existed that Jesus is not Lord over. They might not understand it, they might not recognize it, but he is Lord over all, including the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Jesus, the provider, the provision, is more than enough for everyone. He is more than enough. Jesus' method and provision is not from the grandiose, it's not from a position, a position of strength in this world or a position of might. It's a position from the absurdly weak. It's a position from a poor barley bread in which becomes a magnitude of great provision to all. This is his way. It's the way in which we don't see. It's the way, like, man, we're looking for these issues of power and strength and wealth. They will provide for the needs of the people. And that's never how Jesus provides. Jesus always provides in a way that's counter of this world, and he provides through the weakness, through the small, through the insignificant. If you, there's an African proverb, which I really appreciate because uh, I have an issue with this. If you think you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. I know this because mosquitoes are drawn to me. Like, they just, if there's anyone who's going to have a mosquito bite, it is going to be me. And they're just irritating. The smallest thing. And if you're in that room, all you're going to know and be pestered by is that mosquito. And you'll never catch him. It's that absurdly small, insignificant thing in which God uses time and time again. To provide the world. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-27, Paul gets at this point. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 